Chapter Four, Part B of Roderick Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Roland remembered that when their unknown visitors had passed before them a year previous in the Villa Ludovisi, Roderick and he had exchanged conjectures as to their nationality and social quality. Roderick had declared that they were old-world people, but Roland now needed no telling to feel that he might claim the elder lady as a fellow-countrywoman. She was a person of what is called a great deal of presence, with the faded traces, artfully revived here and there, of once brilliant beauty. Her daughter had come lawfully by her loveliness, but Roland mentally made the distinction that the mother was silly and that the daughter was not. The mother had a very silly mouth, a mouth, Roland suspected, capable of expressing an inordinate degree of unreason. The young girl, in spite of her childish satisfaction in her poodle, was not a person of feeble understanding. Roland received an impression that for reasons of her own she was playing a part. What was the part, and what were her reasons? She was interesting. Roland wondered what were her domestic secrets. If her mother was a daughter of the great republic, it was to be supposed that the young girl was a flower of the American soil but her beauty had a robustness and tone uncommon in the somewhat facile loveliness of our western maidenhood. She spoke with a vague foreign accent, as if she had spent her life in strange countries. The little Italian apparently divined Roland's mute imaginings, for he presently stepped forward with a bow like a master of ceremonies. "'I have not done my duty,' he said, in not announcing these ladies. "'Mrs. Light, Miss Light.' Roland was not materially the wiser for this information, but Roderick was aroused to it by the exercise of some slight hospitality. He altered the light, pulled forward two or three figures, and made an apology for not having more to show. "'I don't pretend to have anything of an exhibition. I am only a novice.' "'Indeed, a novice. For a novice this is very well,' Mrs. Light declared. "'Cavaliere, we have seen nothing better than this.' The Cavaliere smiled rapturously. "'It is stupendous,' he murmured, "'and we have been to all the studios.' "'Not to all, heaven forbid!' cried Mrs. Light, "'but to a number that I have had pointed out by artistic friends. I delight in studios. They are the temples of the beautiful here below. And if you are a novice, Mr. Hudson,' she went on, "'you have already great admirers. Half a dozen people have told us that yours were among the things to see.' This gracious speech went unanswered. Roderick had already wandered across to the other side of the studio, and was revolving about Miss Light. "'Ah, he's gone to look at my beautiful daughter. He is not the first that has had his head turned,' Mrs. Light resumed, lowering her voice to a confidential undertone, a favour which, considering the shortness of their acquaintance, Roland was bound to appreciate. "'The artists are all crazy about her.' When she goes into a studio, she is fatal to the pictures, and when she goes into a ballroom, what do the other women say, eh, Cavaliere? She is very beautiful, Roland said gravely. Mrs. Light, who through her long, gold-cased glass, was looking a little at everything, and at nothing as if she saw it, interrupted her random murmurs and exclamations, and surveyed Roland from head to foot. She looked at him all over. Apparently he had not been mentioned to her as a feature of Roderick's establishment. 
It was the gaze, Roland felt, which the vigilant and ambitious mamma of a beautiful daughter has always at her command for well-dressed young men of candid physiognomy. Her inspection in this case seemed satisfactory. "'Are you also an artist?' she inquired, with an almost caressing inflection. It was clear that what she meant was something of this kind. "'Be so good as to assure me without delay that you are really the young man of substance and amiability that you appear.' But Rowland answered simply the formal question, not the latent one. "'Dear me, no. I am only a friend of Mr. Hudson.' Mrs. Light, with a sigh, returned to the statues, and after mistaking the Adam for a gladiator, and the Eve for a Pocahontas, declared that she could not judge of such things unless she saw them in the marble. Rowland hesitated a moment, and then speaking in the interest of Roderick's renown, said that he was the happy possessor of several of his friend's works, and that she was welcome to come and see them at his rooms. She bade the Cavaliere make a note of his address. "'Ah, you're a patron of the art,' she said. "'That's what I should like to be, if I had a little money. I delight in beauty in every form, but these people ask such monstrous prices. One must be a millionaire to think of such things, eh? Twenty years ago my husband had my portrait painted here, in Rome, by Papucci, who was the great man in those days. I was in a ball-dress, with all my jewels, my neck and arms, and all that.' The man got six hundred francs, and thought he was very well treated. Those were the days when a family could live like princes in Italy for five thousand scudi a year. The Cavaliere, once upon a time, was a great dandy. Don't blush, Cavaliere. Anyone can see that, just as anyone can see that I was once a pretty woman. Get him to tell you what he made a figure upon. The railroads have brought in the Bulgarians. That's what I call it now, the invasion of the Vulgarians. What a poor we to do! Rowland had begun to murmur some remedial proposition, when he was interrupted by the voice of Miss Light calling across the room, Mamma, My own love? This gentleman wishes to model my bust. Please speak to him. The Cavaliere gave a little chuckle. Already, he cried. Roland looked round, equally surprised at the promptitude of the proposal. Roderick stood planted before the young girl with his arms folded, looking at her as he would have done at the Medicean Venus. He never paid compliments, and Roland, though he had not heard him speak, could imagine the startling distinctness with which he made his request. "'He saw me a year ago,' the young girl went on, "'and he has been thinking of me ever since.' Her tone in speaking was peculiar. It had a kind of studied inexpressiveness, which was yet not the vulgar device of a drawl. "'I must make your daughter's bust, that's all, madame,' said Roderick, with warmth. "'I had rather you made the poodles,' said the young girl. "'Is it very tiresome? I have spent half my life sitting for my photograph, in every conceivable attitude, and with every conceivable coiffure. I think I have posed enough.' "'My dear child,' said Mrs. Light, "'it may be one's duty to pose. But as to my daughter's sitting to you, sir, to a young sculptor whom we don't know, it is a matter that needs reflection. It is not a favour that's to be had for the mere asking.' "'If I don't make her from life,' said Roderick, with energy, "'I will make her from memory, and if the thing's to be done, you had better have it done as well as possible.' 
"'Mamma hesitates,' said Miss Light, "'because she doesn't know whether you mean she shall pay you for the bust. I can assure you that she will not pay you a sou.' "'My darling, you forget yourself,' said Mrs. Light, with an attempt at majestic severity. "'Of course,' she added in a moment with a change of note, "'the bust would be my own property.' "'Of course!' cried Roderick impatiently. "'Dearest mother,' interposed the young girl, "'how can you carry a marble bust about the world with you? "'Is it not enough to drag the poor original?' "'My dear, you're nonsensical!' cried Mrs. Light, almost angrily. "'You can always sell it,' said the young girl, with the same artful artlessness. Mrs. Light turned to Rowland, who pitied her, flushed and irritated. "'She is very wicked to-day.' The Cavaliere grinned in silence, and walked away on tiptoe, with his hat to his lips, as if to leave the field clear for action. Rowland, on the contrary, wished to avert the coming storm. "'You had better not refuse,' he said to Miss Light, "'until you have seen Mr. Hudson's things in the marble. Your mother is to come and look at some that I possess.' "'Thank you. I have no doubt you will see us. I dare say Mr. Hudson is very clever, but I don't care for modern sculpture. I can't look at it.' "'You shall care for my bust, I promise you,' cried Roderick, with a laugh. "'To satisfy Miss Light,' said the Cavaliere, "'one of the old Greeks ought to come to life.' "'It would be worth his while,' said Roderick, paying to Rowland's knowledge his first compliment. "'I might sit to Phidias if he would promise to be very amusing and make me laugh. What do you say, Stenterello? Would you sit to Phidias?' "'We must talk of this some other time,' said Mrs. Light. "'We are in Rome for the winter. Many thanks. Cavaliere, call the carriage.' The Cavaliere led the way out, backing like a silver stick, and Miss Light, following her mother, nodded, without looking at them, to each of the young men. "'Immortal powers! What a head!' cried Roderick, when they had gone. "'There's my fortune!' "'She is certainly very beautiful,' said Rowland but I'm sorry you have undertaken her bust. And why, pray? I suspect it will bring trouble with it. What kind of trouble? I hardly know. They are queer people. The mamma, I suspect, is the least bit of an adventuress. Heaven knows what the daughter is. She's a goddess, cried Roderick. Just so. She is all the more dangerous. Dangerous? What will she do to me? She doesn't bite, I imagine. It remains to be seen. There are two kinds of women. You ought to know it by this time. The safe and the unsafe. Miss Light, if I am not mistaken, is one of the unsafe. A word to the wise. Much obliged, said Roderick, and he began to whistle a triumphant air, in honour, apparently, of the advent of his beautiful model. In calling this young lady and her mamma queer people, Rowland but roughly expressed his sentiment. They were so marked a variation from the monotonous troop of his fellow-country people that he felt much curiosity as to the sources of the change, especially since he doubted greatly whether, on the whole, it elevated the type. For a week he saw the two ladies driving daily in a well-appointed landau, with the Cavaliere and the Poodle in the front seat. From Mrs. Light he received a gracious salute, tempered by her native majesty. But the young girl, looking straight before her, seemed profoundly indifferent to observers. Her extraordinary beauty, however, 
had already made observers numerous and given the habitués of the pension plenty to talk about. The echoes of their commentary reached Rowland's ears, but he had little taste for random gossip, and desired a distinctly veracious informant. He had found one in the person of Madame Grandoni, for whom Mrs. Light and her beautiful daughter were a pair of old friends. "'I have known the mamma for twenty years,' said this judicious critic, "'and if you ask any of the people who have been living here as long as I, you will find they remember her well.' I have held the beautiful Christina on my knee when she was a little wizened baby, with a very red face and no promise of beauty but those magnificent eyes. Ten years ago Mrs. Light disappeared, and has not since been seen in Rome, except for a few days last winter, when she passed through on her way to Naples. Then it was you met the trio in the Ludovisi Gardens. When I first knew her, she was the unmarried but very marriageable daughter of an old American painter of very bad landscapes, which people used to buy from charity and use for fireboards. His name was Savage. It used to make everyone laugh. He was such a mild, melancholy, pitiful old gentleman. He had married a horrible wife, an Englishwoman who had been on the stage. It was said she used to beat poor Savage with his mahl-stick and when the domestic finances were low, to lock him up in his studio, and tell him he shouldn't come out until he had painted half a dozen of his daubs. She had a good deal of showy beauty. She would then go forth, and her beauty helping, she would make certain people take the pictures. It helped her at last to make an English lord run away with her. At the time I speak of, she had quite disappeared. Mrs. Light was then a very handsome girl, though by no means so handsome as her daughter has now become. Mr. Light was an American consul, newly appointed at one of the Adriatic ports. He was a mild, fair-whiskered young man, with some little property, and my impression is that he had got into bad company at home, and that his family procured him his place to keep him out of harm's way. He came up to Rome on a holiday, fell in love with Miss Savage, and married her on the spot. He had not been married three years when he was drowned in the Adriatic, no one ever knew how. The young widow came back to Rome, to her father, and here shortly afterwards, in the shadow of St. Peter's, her little girl was born. It might have been supposed that Mrs. Light would marry again, and I know she had opportunities. But she had overreached herself. She would take nothing less than a title and a fortune, and they were not forthcoming. She was admired and very fond of admiration, very vain, very worldly, very silly. She remained a pretty widow with a surprising variety of bonnets, and a dozen men always in her train. Giacosa dates from this period. He calls himself a Roman, but I have an impression he came up from Ancona with her. He was l'ami de la maison. He used to hold her bouquets, clean her gloves, I was told, run her errands, get her opera boxes, and fight her battles with the shopkeepers. For this he needed courage, for she was smothered in debt. She at last left Rome to escape her creditors. Many of them must remember her still, but she seems now to have money to satisfy them. She left her poor old father here alone, helpless, infirm, and unable to work. A subscription was shortly afterwards taken up among the foreigners, and he was sent back to America, where, as I afterwards heard, he died in some sort of asylum. From time to time, for several years, I heard vaguely of Mrs. Light, as a wandering beauty at French and German watering-places. 
Once came a rumour that she was going to make a grand marriage in England. Then we heard that the gentleman had thought better of it, and had left her to keep afloat as she could. She was a terribly scatterbrained creature. She pretends to be a great lady, but I consider that old Philomena, my washerwoman, is in essentials a greater one. But certainly, after all, she has been fortunate. She embarked at last on a lawsuit about some property with her husband's family, and went to America to attend to it. She came back triumphant with a long purse. She reappeared in Italy, and established herself for a while in Venice. Then she came to Florence, where she spent a couple of years, and where I saw her. Last year she passed down to Naples, which I should have said was just the place for her, and this winter she has laid siege to Rome. She seems very prosperous. She has taken a floor in the Palazzo F. She keeps her carriage, and Christina and she, between them, must have a pretty milliner's bill. Giacosa has turned up again, looking as if he had been kept on ice at Ancona for her return. "'What sort of education,' Roland asked, "'do you imagine the mother's adventures to have been for her daughter?' "'A strange school, but Mrs. Light told me in Florence that she had given her child the education of a princess.' In other words, I suppose, she speaks three or four languages, and has read several hundred French novels. Christina, I suspect, is very clever. When I saw her, I was amazed at her beauty, and certainly, if there is any truth in faces, she ought to have the soul of an angel. Perhaps she has. I don't judge her. She's an extraordinary young person. She has been told twenty times a day by her mother, since she was five years old, that she is a beauty of beauties, that her face is her fortune, and that if she plays her cards she may marry a duke. If she has not been fatally corrupted, she is a very superior girl. My own impression is that she is a mixture of good and bad, of ambition and indifference. Mrs. Light, having failed to make her own fortune in matrimony, has transferred her hopes to her daughter, and nursed them till they have become a kind of monomania. She has a hobby, which she rides in secret, but some day she will let you see it. I am sure that if you go in some evening unannounced, you will find her scanning the tea-leaves in her cup, or telling her daughter's fortune with a greasy pack of cards, preserved for the purpose. She promises her a prince, a reigning prince. But if Mrs. Light is silly, she is shrewd, too and lest considerations of state should deny her prince the luxury of a love-match, she keeps on hand a few common mortals. At the worst she would take a duke, an English lord, or even a young American with a proper number of millions. The poor woman must be rather uncomfortable. She is always building castles and knocking them down again, always casting her nets and pulling them in. If her daughter were less of a beauty, her transparent ambition would be very ridiculous. But there is something in the girl, as one looks at her, that seems to make it very possible she is marked out for one of those wonderful romantic fortunes that history now and then relates. Who, after all, was the Empress of the French, Mrs. Light is forever saying, and beside Christina, the Empress is a dowdy. And what does Christina say? She makes no scruple, you know, of saying that her mother is a fool. What she thinks, heaven knows. I suspect that practically she does not commit herself. She is excessively proud, and thinks herself good enough to occupy the highest station in the world, but she knows that her mother talks nonsense, and that even a beautiful girl may look awkward in making unsuccessful advances. So she remains superbly indifferent, and lets her mother take the risks. 
If the prince is secured, so much the better. If he is not, she need never confess to herself that even a prince has slighted her. Your report is as solid, Roland said to Madame Grandoni, thanking her, as if it had been prepared for the Academy of Sciences. And he congratulated himself on having listened to it, when a couple of days later Mrs. Light and her daughter, attended by the Cavaliere and the Poodle, came to his rooms to look at Roderick's statues. It was more comfortable to know just with whom he was dealing. Mrs. Light was prodigiously gracious, and showered down compliments not only on the statues but on all his possessions. "'Upon my word,' she said, "'you men know how to make yourselves comfortable. If one of us poor women had half as many easy-chairs and knick-knacks, we should be famously abused. It's really selfish to be living all alone in such a place as this. Cavaliere, how should you like this suite of rooms, and a fortune to fill them with pictures and statues? Christina, love, look at the mosaic table. Mr. Mallet, I could almost beg it from you. Yes, that Eve is certainly very fine. We needn't be ashamed of such a great-grandmother as that. If she was really such a beautiful woman, it accounts for the good looks of some of us. Where is Mr. Watts's name, the young sculptor? Why isn't he here to be complimented? Christina had remained but for a moment in the chair which Roland had placed for her, had given but a cursory glance at the statues, and then leaving her place, had begun to wander around the room, looking at herself in the mirror, touching the ornaments and curiosities, glancing at the books and prints. Roland's sitting-room was encumbered with bric-a-brac, and she found plenty of occupation. Roland presently joined her, and pointed out some of the objects he most valued. "'It's an odd jumble,' she said frankly. "'Some things are very pretty, some are very ugly. But I like ugly things when they have a certain look. Prettiness is terribly vulgar nowadays, and it is not every one that knows just the sort of ugliness that has chic. But chic is getting dreadfully common, too.' There's a hint of it even in Madame Baldi's bonnets. I like looking at people's things, she added in a moment, turning to Roland, and resting her eyes on him. It helps you to find out their characters. Am I to suppose, asked Roland, smiling, that you have arrived at any conclusions as to mine? I am rather muddled. You have too many things. One seems to contradict another. You are very artistic, and yet you are very prosaic. You have what is called a Catholic taste, and yet you are full of obstinate little prejudices and habits of thought, which, if I knew you, I should find very tiresome. I don't think I like you." "'You make a great mistake,' laughed Roland. "'I assure you, I am very amiable.' "'Yes, I am probably wrong, and if I knew you, I should find out I was wrong, and that would irritate me and make me dislike you more. So, you see, we are necessary enemies.' No. I don't dislike you. Worse and worse, for you certainly will not like me. You are very discouraging. I am fond of facing the truth, though some day you will deny that. Where is that queer friend of yours? You mean Mr. Hudson? He is represented by these beautiful works. Miss Light looked for some moments at Roderick's statues. Yes, she said, they are not so silly as most of the things we have seen. They have no chic, and yet they are beautiful. You describe them perfectly, said Roland. They are beautiful, and yet they have no chic. That's it. If he will promise to put none into my bust, I have a mind to let him make it. A request made in those terms deserves to be granted. In what terms? 
Didn't you hear him? Mademoiselle, you almost satisfy my conception of the beautiful. I must model your bust. That almost should be rewarded. He is like me. He likes to face the truth. I think we should get on together. The Cavaliere approached Roland to express the pleasure he had derived from his beautiful collection. His smile was exquisitely bland, his accent appealing, caressing, insinuating. But he gave Roland an odd sense of looking at a little waxen image, adjusted to perform certain gestures and emit certain sounds. It had once contained a soul, but the soul had leaked out. Nevertheless, Roland reflected, there are more profitless things than mere sound and gesture in a consummate Italian. And the Cavaliere, too, had soul enough left to desire to speak a few words on his own account, and call Roland's attention to the fact that he was not, after all, a hired Cicerone, but an ancient Roman gentleman. Roland felt sorry for him. He hardly knew why. He assured him in a friendly fashion that he must come again, that his house was always at his service. The Cavaliere bowed down to the ground. "'You do me too much honour, he murmured. "'If you will allow me, it is not impossible.' Mrs. Light, meanwhile, had prepared to depart. "'If you are not afraid to come and see two quiet little women, we shall be most happy,' she said. "'We have no statues nor pictures. We have nothing but each other, eh, darling?' "'I beg your pardon,' said Christina. "'Oh, and the Cavaliere,' added her mother. "'The poodle, please,' cried the young girl. Roland glanced at the Cavaliere. He was smiling more blandly than ever. A few days later Roland presented himself, as civility demanded, at Mrs. Light's door. He found her living in one of the stately houses of the Via dell'Angelo Custode, and rather to his surprise was told she was at home. He passed through half a dozen rooms, and was ushered into an immense saloon, at one end of which sat the mistress of the establishment with a piece of embroidery. She received him very graciously, and then pointing mysteriously to a large screen which was unfolded across the embrasure of one of the deep windows, I am keeping guard, she said. Roland looked interrogative, whereupon she beckoned him forward and motioned him to look behind the screen. He obeyed, and for some moments stood gazing. Roderick, with his back turned, stood before an extemporized pedestal, ardently shaping a formless mass of clay. Before him sat Christina Light, in a white dress, with her shoulders bare, her magnificent hair twisted into a classic coil, and her head admirably poised. Meeting Roland's gaze, she smiled a little, only with her deep grey eyes, without moving. She looked divinely beautiful. End of chapter 4, part b